Welcome to Time Traveling Team, a weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy. And I'm Trisha. This week we join the Doctor and Sarah Jane as they return to Earth, but at the wrong time, and they're caught up in the mystery of the Pyramids of Mars. We'll be discussing the Doctor, the companions, and the villains, and give your thoughts on the story as a whole. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this story, so in order to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. That's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, or you can email us at timetravelingteam at teamproductions.com. But first, I will give you the story recap, and I will try and contain myself, for this is a story I really like. <laughs> Spoilers! I mean, this story is terrible. <laughs> I think they bought it. You clod Episode 1. During an archaeological dig in Egypt in 1911, Professor Marcus Scarman and his excavation crew unearthed a tomb dating back to the earliest days of the pharaohs. As he explores the tomb, he pulls aside a tapestry and discovers an artifact which he says is the Eye of Horus, which is embedded in the wall. The eye suddenly glows red and the excavation crew flee in terror, leaving Scarman alone. He brushes off their concerns as mere superstition and starts to pry the eye out of the wall. As he does so, the wall suddenly slides open, revealing a corridor leading further into the tomb. Scarman walks down the corridor, coming to an antechamber where he is suddenly bathed in bright green light which causes him to scream in pain. Meanwhile, in the TARDIS, the Doctor is acting uncharacteristically morose as Sarah Jane comes out of the TARDIS wardrobe wearing an outfit that once belonged to his old companion, Victoria. Thinking that he means Queen Victoria, Sarah Jane cracks a joke, but the Doctor doesn't seem to react to it. Instead, he mentions his long life as a Time Lord and his frustrations towards his current role as Unit's scientific advisor. Suddenly, the TARDIS is struck, causing him to fall to the floor, and Sarah Jane sees an apparition of a strange disembodied head belonging to some sort of creature. The Doctor gets the TARDIS stabilised, and Sarah Jane tries to tell him what she saw, but he says nothing can get through the TARDIS shield unless it was a force of great mental projection. He suddenly announces that they have landed, and upon exiting the TARDIS, find themselves in a storage room filled with Egyptian artefacts. He informs a confused Sarah Jane that they have arrived back at Unit HQ, but whatever struck the TARDIS caused it to land at an earlier point in time. Sarah Jane says that the building at, that the HQ was built on was burnt to the ground, and voices her concern. The doctor says they need to find out what's going on when they suddenly hear strange, sinister organ music coming from somewhere in the house. In a large study, an Egyptian man plays an ornate organ but is interrupted by the appearance of Collins, the butler, who says that an old acquaintance of Professor Scarman has arrived. The Egyptian gives out to the butler for disturbing him, but Scarman's friend arrives and the butler is dismissed. The man introduces himself as Dr. Warlock, Scarman's oldest friend, and says that he has come due to the concerns that he and Scarman's brother Lawrence have over the lack of communication they have received from him. The Egyptian, whose name is Ibrahim Namin, says that he has been put in charge of the relics that were recovered from the dig and that he is to let no one enter the house until Scarman returns. Warlock refuses to leave and continues to demand answers from Namin. Outside, Colin eavesdrops on their conversation, but notices that someone has tried to open one of the internal doors. He opens and finds the Doctor and Sarah Jane looking at a room containing sarcophaguses, talking about the changes that they would make to it. Collins confronts them, saying that they must have come with Warlock. He tells him to warn Warlock about Namin, and the Doctor asks why he is so worried about him. He tells him that Namin sealed off this section of the house, not realising that Collins had another key for the area. He then advises them to leave by the window so it not has to arouse suspicion. As Collins watches them go, he fails to notice one of the sarcophaguses opening behind him. The Doctor and Sarah Jane silently approach the study window and listen to Warlock and Namin argue. Suddenly Warlock and Namin hear Collins scream and they rush to find him dead on the floor. Namin says that the old gods have returned and pulls a gun on Warlock. He prepares to shoot him, but he's attacked from behind by the Doctor, who knocks Namin to the ground before escaping with Warlock. 
Lamine gets up and opens one of the sarcophaguses to reveal a mummy inside, which he reanimates by using a ring on his finger. Outside, the Doctor and Sarah Jane help Warlock, who was wounded when Lamine's gun went off in the struggle with the Doctor. He tells him to take him to a nearby lodge, where Scarmansborough Lawrence is residing, but he faints from weakness. The Doctor sends Sarah Jane ahead to make sure that the coast is clear, whilst he carries Warlock. Sarah Jane spots the mummy moving and takes cover as it searches the area. Meanwhile, Lamine is also searching the woods for the Doctor and Warlock, who are forced to take cover when they see the mummy up ahead. Suddenly the sound of organ music comes from the house, and Lamine, saying that his god has arrived, goes back to the house with the mummy. A few moments later, Sarah Jane arrives with Lawrence, having found him at the lodge, and Sarah Jane tells him about seeing the mummy, but the doctor indicates that it is not an actual mummy as they make their way to the lodge. Once there, they tend to Warlock's wound and discuss what to do next. Lawrence suggests contacting the police, but the doctor says that they would only get in the way as something is interfering with time. Lawrence asks who they are, and Sarah Jane says that they are time travellers, but he doesn't believe her. The doctor then comments on a device on a nearby workstation, and commends Lawrence for on having created a rudimentary radio telescope 40 years earlier than it was meant to be. Lawrence is stunned by the doctor's knowledge of the device, but happily gives him a demonstration of it after the doctor requests one. However, it unfortunately overloads and blows up, but the doctor notices that a signal was recorded on a repeating loop, and asks where the telescope was aimed. Lawrence says that it was aimed at Mars, and the Doctor takes a portable radio telescope out of his pocket to confirm the machine's recordings, and then sets about decoding the message. Meanwhile in the house, Namine plays the organ as a group of mummies enter the study and begin to venerate themselves before an ornate sarcophagus. Back at the lodge, the Doctor says the message says, Beware Sutek, and informs the others that Sutek is the basis for the Egyptian god Set. He says that whatever is happening at the house is about to put the world in peril, and he leaves, telling the others to stay behind. However, Lawrence grabs a hunting rifle and he follows on after Sarah Jane as they go after the doctor. He arrives at the study and watches through the door as the front of the sarcophagus fades to reveal an interstellar tunnel. Namine goes to it and bows before it as a tall, black-clothed and helmeted figure emerges. He swears his devotion to Sutek, but the figure says that Sutek only requires one servant and kills Namine. Episode 2 The figure's cloak and armour fade away, revealing the deathly pale Professor Scarman beneath it. He orders the assembled mummies to take a group of generator relays, which are housed in ancient canopic jars, and place them around the grounds. Out in the hallway, the doctor tells the others to hide, and they watch as the mummies file past. Once they are gone, the doctor goes to the study and tells the others that Sutek is attempting to break free from his prison, and if he is successful, he will destroy the world. He tells them that Sutek destroyed his home planet, Phaestor Osiris, and wreaked havoc throughout the galaxy until he was stopped on Earth by his fellow Osirans, led by Horus, which became the foundation of Egyptian mythology. Lawrence expresses confusion as the Doctor examines the sarcophagus, and reveals that it is actually the entrance of a time-space tunnel, and that is what blew the TARDIS off course. He suddenly tells him to keep back as the tunnel activates, and tries to pull him in. He throws something into it which causes a mini-explosion, and he is thrown to the ground unconscious. Sarah Jane says that they need to leave before anyone comes back, and Lawrence searches for a secret door that he and Marcus discovered when they were younger. Meanwhile, out in the woods, a poacher inspecting his traps spots one of the mummies stuck in one of them. He takes cover and watches as the mummy frees itself and then walks back into the woods. The poacher then flees, but after a while runs into an invisible barrier that prevents him from going any further. In the lodge, Warlock hears someone enter, and he sees Saruman come into the room. He is confused by his friend's strange behaviour, and is referred to Lawrence as the other Scarman. Warlock tells him about their encounter with Namine, but when he mentions the Doctor, Scarman grows angry and says that everyone within the barrier will be killed. A mummy then enters, and Scarman orders it to kill Warlock. 
He is scream scare off the poacher who was about to enter the lodge, and he runs back into the woods before Skarmer and the mummy emerge. Once the coast is clear, the poacher follows them. In the secret tunnel, the doctor slowly starts to come to and says that the time-space tunnel was booby-trapped. He says they need to find Sutek's prison, and he asks Lawrence where the excavation was happening. The doctor says that Sutek is using his considerable mental abilities to control the events taking place, but he can potentially stop him with Lawrence's equipment in the lodge. He then realises that he may be able to find Sutek's location by reversing the energy signal from Lamine's ring, but Sarah Jane tells him to stay quiet as she hears something outside. Scarman enters the study with the mummies and orders them to take Lamine's body away, and then search the house for the others. After they leave, he starts to make his way towards the entrance to the secret tunnel, but he is suddenly shot in the back by the poacher, who is observing everything through the window. The poacher watches in amazement as the wound caused by his gun repairs itself, and Scarman starts to approach him. He flees from the scene, and Scarman orders the mummies to follow and kill the poacher. Scarman then leaves the study, and the doctor leads the others to try and find Lamine's body. They take cover as Scarman leads a pair of mummies carrying components to build some sort of device outside. The doctor finds Lamine's body and takes the ring, whilst Lawrence discovers the plan of the device Scarman is trying to build. The doctor realises that they are building a rocket, and informs an incredulous Sarah Jane that the mummies are actually service robots. He tells them that Scarman must be building the rocket in order to free Sutek from his prison. They take cover in the TARDIS when Scarman and the mummies return to collect more equipment. Lawrence is amazed by the inside of the ship, and the doctor encourages his childlike wonderment and lets him look around. Sarah Jane then suggests that they go back to their own time, saying that Sutek's plan must have failed as they had no prior knowledge of him. The doctor agrees to go in order to show Sarah Jane what would happen if they don't stop Sutek, and she and Lawrence are horrified to see that the world has become a desolate wasteland. He tells them that the course of history can be altered to a certain extent, but a being with Sutek's powers can destroy it completely. Sarah Jane then says they have to go back to stop him, and once they land, they make their way to the lodge. Back in the study, Scarman communes with Sutek and tells him about the presence of the Doctor and the others. Sutek tells Scarman to focus his efforts on building the rocket so that he can be freed as soon as possible. At the lodge, the Doctor and the others find Warlock's body, and Lawrence says that he can't believe that his brother could kill his best friend. The Doctor tells him that his brother no longer exists, and that he is now a shell of a human being that Sutek is using as a pawn. Sergeant asks how a being as evil as Sutek was allowed to live, and the Doctor tells them that Osiris imprisoned him as they felt that killing him would make them no better than he was. He tells them that Sutek is being held in his prison beneath the pyramids by a force field emanating from Mars. He says that the rocket being built will destroy it and allow Sutek to go free. He starts to work on the radio telescope and asks Lawrence to get him a magneto. After he leaves, Sergeant asks what will happen if they can block Sutek's signal and the doctor says that Scarman will no longer be able to function. Lawrence overhears this, but they are suddenly drawn to the sound of the screams from outside. They rush outside to see the poacher being crushed to death by the mummies, and Lawrence shoots them, but to no effect. The doctor pushes him and Sarah Jane back inside as the mummies follow them. The doctor tells Sarah Jane to turn on the signal jammer, but Lawrence tries to stop her, still believing that there is a way to save his brother. She manages to fend him off and activates the jammer, just as the mummies break through the door. They overpower the Doctor and Lawrence, and one of them begins to strangle Sarah Jane. Episode 3 The jamming machine explodes, and Sarah Jane uses the distraction to get free from the mummy. She picks up Namine's ring and uses it to order the mummies to return back to the house. After they leave, the Doctor berates Lawrence for his actions, saying that he may have ruined their only chance of stopping Sutek. Lawrence tries to apologise, and again reiterates his hopes of saving his brother, but the Doctor retorts that Scarman is little more than an animated human cadaver. He tells him to stay in the lodge and then leaves, followed by Sarah Jane, who tells Lawrence that they are going to find out what his Scarman is doing. 
In the study, Scarman receives orders from Sutek, who was held in place on his throne by the force field, to continue construction of the rocket, as the longer they delay, the less chance they have of to free him. The doctor and Sarah Jane arrive at the back wall of the house and watch as the mummies continue to build the rocket. They then see Scarman arrive and make their way back to the lodge. Once there, the doctor says that the mummies are most likely receiving their power from a Cytronic particle accelerator, most likely housed in Sutek's tomb. He says that he could try getting there via this time-space tunnel, but Sarah Jane says that Sutek will kill him once he arrives. Lawrence suggests that they blow up the rocket and says that he, they could use some explosives belonging to the poacher. He tells them where to find the poacher's hut, and the doctor tells him to stay behind. Lawrence says he knows he is a liability, but the doctor, in an effort to reassure him and keep him occupied, asks him to remove the bandages from the mummy while they are gone. The doctor and Sarah Jane make their way to the poacher's hut, encountering the invisible barrier. They find one of the generator relays, and the doctor uses his sonic screwdriver to carefully deactivate it, asking Sarah Jane to hold it steady lest it accidentally cause it to explode. After a few tense moments, they manage to remove the power core from the generator and take it with them. Back at the house, Sutek, who sensed the interference of the barrier, contacts Scarman, who says that the human beings wouldn't understand the technology of the generator loops. Sutek says that there is an alien life form up against him and tells Scarman to hunt him down whilst leaving two mummies to guard the rocket. He then vows to destroy all life once he is freed. At the poacher's hut, Sarah Jane asks how powerful Sutek is. The doctor says that not even the Time Lords could stop him. He tells her that it took 740 Osirens to imprison Sutek, and she comments that they would eventually become the gods of Egypt. After a few moments of searching, Sarah Jane finds a gelling light and inadvertently nearly blows them up by throwing it to the doctor. She says that she was unable to find any detonators or fuses, and so they make their way back to the lodge. At the lodge, Scarman arrives and Lawrence tries to get through to him, but to no avail. Scarman grabs him, demanding to know everything about the doctor, and Lawrence begs him to stop. Meanwhile, the Doctor and Sarah Jane drop the gelic knight at the back wall, and Sarah Jane asks how they are going to detonate it without any fuses. The Doctor says they will have to f- figure it out later and make their way back to the lodge. They find the mummy completely unwrapped, but they also find Lawrence dead, strangled by Scarman. Sarah Jane grows sad at this and berates the Doctor for his flippant attitude, but he says that more people will die unless they stop Sutek as soon as possible. He then gets her to wrap him in the mummy's bandages so that they can approach the rocket unnoticed, and they then leave, with the doctor telling Sarah to bring Lawrence's hunting rifle with her. In the study, Scarman reports that the rocket is nearly ready, and Sutek sends him a, a component through the time-space tunnel containing the coordinates to the power source on Mars. Outside the house, the doctor collects the gelignite and places it near the rocket, with Sarah Jane covering him with the rifle. Before the doctor can leave, though, he is stopped by Scarman, who orders him to input the coordinates into the rocket's guidance system. Scarman then leaves, accompanied by another mummy, and once they are gone, the doctor goes back towards Sarah Jane. Once he is clear, she shoots the dragon light and it hits it, but the resulting explosion seems to reverse itself, causing no damage to the rocket. The doctor reveals that Sutek is using his mental powers to hold the explosion at bay, and he says that the only way to stop him is to go to his tomb. They make their way to the study, but stop outside when they hear Sutek ordering Scarman to remove the dragon light immediately, as he cannot contain the explosion for too much longer. After Scarman leaves, the doctor makes his way into the study and enters the time-space tunnel, arriving at Sutek's tomb. He enters the chamber holding Sutek, who is wearing ancient Egyptian robes as well as a black and red pharaoh-style helmet, and calls out to him, thereby distracting him from holding back the force of the explosion. Jelignite blows up the rocket, and Sutek angrily turns towards the doctor, bombarding him with the same green energy that he used on Scarman, causing him to fall to the ground in agony. Episode 4 Sutek spares the doctor and demands to know who he is. When the doctor refuses, Sutek subjects him to more of his power again, 
saying that he can make him suffer for eternity if he wishes. The doctor reveals his identity as a Time Lord, and Sutek offers him an alliance, given his status as a radical amongst his own people. The doctor refuses, saying that Sutek is reviled throughout the universe, and Sutek tortures him again, forcing the doctor to kneel before him. He is interrupted by Scarman, who reveals that Sarah Jane was captured by the mummies. Sutek tells him to kill her, but the doctor begs him not to, and Sutek says that he will keep her alive for the time being. He then asks the doctor why he is so eager to keep her alive, and the doctor says that he wants to save all life wherever he can, saying that Sutek seeks to destroy it so that he can have no rivals. Sutek sees past the doctor's words and realises that Sarah Jane is his travelling companion. He then brings up an image of the TARDIS on screen, having taken it from the doctor's mind. The doctor, realising that Sutek would be unstoppable if he escapes, berates him for his evil nature, and in return Sutek tortures him again. He telekinetically takes the TARDIS key from the doctor's pocket and sends it through the time-space tunnel to Scarman, telling him to take a mummy and pilot the TARDIS to Mars. The doctor reveals that the controls for the ship are isomorphic, meaning that they only respond to the doctor's touch. However, Sutek mentally possessed the doctor and he sends him through the time-space tunnel in order to pilot the TARDIS to Mars. He then tells Scarman to bring Sarah Jane with them and he is to kill her if the doctor shows any sign of resistance. Scarman tests the Doctor when he arrives back, and the Doctor swears allegiance to Sutek. As they leave, Sutek tells Scarman to kill the Doctor once they arrive on Mars, so that he doesn't cause them any problems later on. The TARDIS lands beneath a pyramid on Mars, and Sutek tells Scarman where the hidden entrance to the control chamber is. After he opens the door, Scarman orders the mummy to strangle the Doctor. Sarah Jane tries to stop it to no avail, and she cries as she cradles the Doctor's body while Scarman and the mummy enter the next chamber. The doctor suddenly asks her to stop soaking his shirt with her tears, and he reveals that he survived due to his respiratory bypass system, a feature of his time-lord biology that allows him to survive without oxygen for short periods of time. Sarah Jane tells him where they are, and shows him where Scarman went through, but finds the throwaway was sealed again. The doctor says they need to find Scarman before he releases Sutek, and sets about trying to open the door. In the next chamber, Scarman warns Sutek of a booby trap on the access panel to the next chamber, and guides him to a hidden bypass switch, allowing him to continue. The Doctor and Sarah Jane come in a few moments later, and they narrowly avoid falling for the, the booby trap as well, when the Doctor realises that the access panel would be too obvious to use. He finds the bypass switch, and they advance on. Meanwhile, in the next chamber, Scarman comes across a puzzle mounted on a wall, and Sutek warns him to be careful, as pressing the wrong panel will activate the explosives on the floor. He berates Horace for his attempts to stop anyone entering the pyramid, and as he guides Scarman to the right panel. The Doctor and Sarah Jane nearly walk in on them, but quickly turn around before they are spotted by the mummy. They wait until Scarman and the mummy move on, before trying to figure out the puzzle themselves. Sarah Jane says it reminds her of the panels from the City of the Excellence, and the Doctor successfully finds the right panel. They move on to the next chamber, but suddenly a transparent tube appears around Sarah Jane, trapping her inside. The Doctor tells her to keep calm whilst he tries to get her out. He then notices two switches at the bottom, and realises that he has a 50-50 chance at saving her. Suddenly, two armoured mummies appear from thin air, and Horace's voice fills the air. He tells him that one of the mummies will only tell the truth, whilst the other will only tell lies, and says that they are allowed to ask them one question. The doctor approaches one of them, and asks if he were to ask the other mummy which was the right switch, which one would he point to? The mummy points to one of the switches, and the doctor realises that in either instance, the one indicated is the booby trap switch, and so he presses the other, releasing Sarah Jane. He then tells her that they need to hurry to stop Scarman. Scarman and the other mummy have reached the chamber containing the Eye of Horus, the power source for Sutek's prison, and Sutek tells him to destroy it. 
one of the armored mummies appears and fights Scarman's mummy. Scarman then takes on the appearance of an Osiron as Sutek channels his full power through him to destroy the eye, which explodes. Scarman then drops to the ground and crumbles in the dust as Sutek no longer has any use for him. Sergeant says that Sutek has won, but the doctor notices that all the chamber's doors have opened again and he says that there is still a chance to stop him. They rush back to the TARDIS and go back to Scarman's house. Meanwhile, Sutek gets up from his throne, relishing in his newfound freedom, and prepares to enter the time-space tunnel, vowing to Horace that he will have his revenge. However, he finds the Doctor and Sarah Jane waiting for him, holding him at bay with a device taken from the TARDIS. The Doctor reveals that he has set up a temporal trap, and he sets the exit of the time-space tunnel to a point far into the future, causing Sutek to waste his entire 7,000-year lifespan. The Doctor reveals to a confused Sarah Jane that they had a two-minute window to stop Sutek after the eye was destroyed, as that is the length of time it takes for radio waves to pass from Earth to Mars. Suddenly, the time-space tunnel explodes and the Doctor realises that he didn't factor in the terminal imbalance caused by the shifting of the tunnel's endpoint. Sarah Jane reminds him that the building that they are in is recorded as having burnt to the ground, paving the way for a unit to eventually restore it. The Doctor then says that they should leave, as he doesn't want to be held responsible for another fire like the one in 1666. End of the story. So now that I have recapped the adventure, we are now going to go on to the story behind the adventure. So Trish, what have you got for us in the trivia spot this week? Cool. So the air date for this story is the 25th of October to the 15th of November, 1975. The writer for the story is Stephen Harris. Now, um, Stephen Harris isn't actually a person. <laughs> <laughs> so the story was originally written by Lewis Greifer, but it was considered to be unworkable. I'll talk a little bit about what the original story was like, but Greifer wasn't available to do rewrites. And so Robert Holmes basically rewrote the whole story himself. And so a pseudonym was used on transmission, which is Stephen Harris. So technically, this is a Bob Holmes, but <laughs> credited Stephen Harris. The director for the story is Paddy Russell. This is story three of four for Paddy. We previously saw her work in The Massacre and Invasion of the Dinosaurs, and we'll see her work again in Horror of Bang Rock. So, the original script. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm taking this verbatim from the TARDIS wiki, right? So, it originally saw the Doctor and his companion, who was just generically referred to as Jane, apparently. Word. Attend a conference on food reserves at the British Museum, along with the Brigadier, who it was suggested might be killed off in the story. The Doctor's friend, Professor Fauzi, Fauzi, F-A-W-Z-I, mm, I, Fauzi, I, yeah. and his partner, Dr. Robertson, are there to unveil their work on a new type of grain, which can flourish on the surface of the moon, thereby solving all the world's hunger problems. However, the conference is soon attacked by the crocodile-like, the crocodile-like Egyptian god Sebek and his army of mummies. Sebek and his master Sek are aliens who came to Earth millennia ago intent on conquest, who were replaced in suspended animation by a powerful artifact called the Eye Wielded by Horus. So, the Eye of Horus. Having reawakened, they now intend to replace Fauzi Robertson's grain with one which will, with one which will result in the moon's disintegration, which in turn will obviously have catastrophic effects on the Earth. The Doctor manages to locate Set's resting place beneath the Egyptian pyramid, and is assisted by Horus and another deity, Isis, in defeating Seth and destroying the probe in mid-flight. That sounds like 
like a made for TV movie on the Sci Fi Channel. Yeah, you know, it. I don't hate it. In many ways, it sort of has a little bit of um, an Osiris in Stargate SG One feel to it. Yeah, like that. That one. That story is way more Stargatey. I think. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, no, that's not to say that Star that Stargate looks like a really bad made for TV movie on a Sci-Fi channel. No, no, it's not. <laughs> no, no, it's not. Uh, Stargate issue one is awesome. awesome. Yeah, and Stargate the movie is awesome. All of the other Stargates are awesome. I think Stargate the movie gets a really bad rap. Me too. It's good. Personally, I think SG one is better. Yes, no, I agree. Definitely agree. But the movie's good. Anyway, we're not talking Stargate. No, we're not. We're talking. We're talking so, throughout the story, Sutek's race are called Osirens, hmm. obviously after Osiris. However, in the script and in all the publicity material, it was spelt Osirian with an extra I before hmm. the A at the end. Um, and in some places, it was Osiren, you know, as we see heard it in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in the novelization, in some other places, it's actually Osirian with an I, mm-hmm. which is weird. Um, in the novelization, there's more information on Sutek and the history of the Osirens at the beginning, and there's an epilogue where Sarah looks into the history of the Priory and how its destruction was explained, which I think is really cool. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I need to get my hands on that. You have it, don't you? Hello. I do, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, for those of you who are a fan of the Doctor's clothing, you may have noticed a bit of a change here. I mentioned last week the Plant of Evil was the last time he was going to be seen in his original outfit. Mm-hmm. Now he has a somewhat longer burgundy coat instead of his shorter red shooting jacket. Yeah. So if you don't pay too much attention to it, you probably wouldn't realize it, but it is a different coat. Mm-hmm. But now, Pyramids of Mars is a story beloved by many. However, it probably is one of the biggest contributors to what is referred to as the unit dating controversy. Because Sarah Jane says at several points in time that she is from 1980. Mm -hmm. Whereas up until that point, the show was kind of considered to be running parallel to real time or maybe a year or two ahead. So this story came out in 1975. It's going to be assumed that, like, you know, in real time, it would be maybe, like, 1976 in the show or something like that. Yeah, because do you remember we had the discussion about, in The Demons, the existence of BBC Three? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And here we have Sarah Jane saying that she's from 1980. Also, in stories that come later and in other works, it's kind of implied that, you know, the unit years with the third Doctor were... In the early to mid 70s, mm-hmm. which again ties in with their broadcast year. So I always took it that Sarah meant that she's from around 1980. Mm-hmm. But then I think about last night, like, there's a big gap between 1975 and 1980. Yeah. You would have said you're from the 70s. Mm-hmm. Not that you're from the 80s, but we'll see. So the new TARDIS console we saw in the previous story, Planet of Evil, and we actually don't see it again. Until the Invisible Enemy. <laughs> so <laughs> it was like, yeah, we have a new console. Fuck it. Um, this is because the cost of setting up the, the TARDIS console room was actually really expensive. Um, and so they started going for a less expensive set and console for the upcoming season. The scenes in Sutek's tomb in the story, which are take place in Egypt, is the first time the series has visited a country on Earth 
outside of the UK since the enemy of the world, which was fucking ages ago. Jesus Christ, that's a long <laughs> time. Everything else has been UK-based, whereas enemy of the world, obviously they went to Australia, or Australasia, I can't remember what it's called in that story. Yeah, I think it's called Australasia. Hmm. This is the first of two stories in the classic series in which every single character we see, with the exception of the Doctor and his companion, die. Jeez. They all die. Jesus Christ, you're right. So if you only included the TV show, you could kind of say like, oh, but like the Egyptian laborers at the beginning survived. No, Terrence Dix killed them in the book. Um, <laughs> 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 according to the novelization, uh, Ibrahim's men killed them when they fled the tomb. So oh, wow. no one lives. <laughs> Better the doctor and surgeon. Oh, I was going to say nice, but also bad. <laughs> yeah. So there's a couple of scenes that were deleted from the final broadcast. Um, originally, there was a model shot of the TARDIS landing in the sort of barren alternate 1980 world. Um, but Paddy Russell thought it should be better impact if we see it from Sarah's point of view as the doors are opening. Hmm. There were three scenes, such as doors opening, special effects, and Doctor materializing from the sarcophagus. These were removed because Paddy Russell just wasn't really happy with them. She thought the mixes on them weren't good. Hmm. You can see these on the DVD if you're that way inclined. Also, there's an alternative version of the poacher being hunted down in part two. And there is a full version of the Osiron rocket explosion if you're that way inclined. And you're like, okay, those things. Uh, just like, you know, the section where like they open the door to show the desolate world. I got such severe Bosco flashbacks. You know, like, what's true? The hidden door? <laughs> it's another knock, zoo. Knock, open wide. Is there <laughs> another zoo? <side? laughs> Yeah, it was either a zoo sure. or... It's not, it's not just another zoo, it's Dublin Zoo. It's a different yeah. part of Dublin Zoo. It's always it fucking w- Dublin Zoo. It was either that or a factory of some description. <laughs> yeah. So, at one point, the doctor is dressed in the mummy outfit. Mm-hmm. That is actually Tom Baker. Paddy Russell insisted on it, and Tom didn't particularly like it. But I love the fact that you can tell that it's Tom, mm-hmm. because he walks different. Yeah. He doesn't really try to blend in in his walk. No. <laughs> he just walks the way Tom walks. Such a waddle to him as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the house where this was filmed, so the Priory House, mm-hmm. uh, that was actually owned by Mick Jagger. No one knows if he ever actually lived in it or used it for anything, but he owned it. <laughs> Which is random. <laughs> I, I love random sci-fi facts and musicians. Like, yeah. it's like you'll say, holy, Christoberg owns the fucking alien costume. Really? Yeah, he he bought it at auction. I fucking hate Christopher. I know you hate Christopher. <laughs> Christopher, <laughs> sorry, you wrote a song that traumatized me as a child. <laughs> so the Sutek head mask, the mm. animal one, not the mm-hmm. long one. Yeah, but the animal one that we see in the TARDIS in the beginning and also in episode four. The reason why they chose that one is because it's the one that had the biggest effect on Elizabeth Sladen. They showed her a few, and she gasped at that one. So that one. I'm like, cool. Yeah. Good way to pick a pick one. There is a flub in this, which I think is probably one of the best known flubs of classic Doctor Who. Yeah. This isn't a line flub. This isn't a wobbly set. No. This is something that when they release this season on Blu-ray, which they will eventually, they have to. I hope... I kind of, part of me hopes they do find a way to remove it, but also part of me doesn't. 
So at the point where Sutek is finally able to leave his chair, his bonds have been released. He stands up and the hand that had been helping to hold him in place just sort of disappears down the side of the chair. After making sure like that the cushion doesn't fall off the, the, yeah. the throne. Yeah, it's like, cool, he's fine and bye-bye. <laughs> and it's not subtle. Do you know? <laughs> you have you have this dark space and like this Casper the ghost hand <laughs> just disappearing down the side of a black chair. No, like honestly, like much in the same way as like the stormtrooper clunking its head off the door. Sans yeah. sound effect. I cannot stress that yeah. enough. Do not fucking overemphasize it. Just leave it in. Because it adds to the charm, I think. Yeah, but it's always good for a giggle. Like I haven't watched this story now in what, close to two years at this point. Maybe yeah. a little over than two years. And I couldn't remember how obvious it was. And I just watched it and just knew about myself. It's so good. (laughs) So Sutek himself is played by Gabriel Wolf. We'll talk about him in a little bit. But apparently Tom Baker was a bit standoffish with him. A little bit bit of tension there. So apparently Gabriel really enjoyed watching back the scenes where he tortures the doctor. He got great joy out of it. <laughs> I say apparently on this because there's a citation needed for that. Um, but it's also the type of thing that I sort of imagine happening. You know, you know, you have personality clashes on set and stuff that happens. Mm. A bit of a Marx Brothers moment in this one. When the Doctor and Sarah calmly turn in unison to walk out of sight of a mummy. That was Tom and Liz. Mm. So they talked that up by themselves. And like from the way they tell it on the DVD, on the audio commentary, you know, Tom was like, oh, we should do this Marx Brothers bit. Yeah. And they were like, you know, oh, you know, we don't have a lot of time. There's special effects. Obviously, there's the CSO going throughout that entire scene of the like the sand particles or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Tom, we'll just, we'll just go with what we have, blah, blah. And apparently Tom and it's like, let's just do it. But they knew that if they did it, they had to get it perfect because yeah. they'd fuck up the special effect otherwise. And they, and they, they did it. it. They nailed it. It's perfect Mark Brothers bit of just in, turn, out, no sound, perfect unison. Brilliant. And it's it's not even it's just like it's so casual and non plus like it's like I I love the amount of like Marx Brothers influence Tom brings into his thing between his mm. harpo facial expressions and like even his like the bit there where he's like um leading Sarah Jane like along the the outside of the building and like they're just like crouching down and it's <laughs> it's such like a, a groucho thing to do I love it yeah so we mentioned that everyone dies <laughs> as is the way not everyone was meant to die though uh, Ernie Clements the poacher he was meant to survive Paddy Ross decided to kill him off <laughs> like okay buddy I don't know if she had a bit of a sort of like I must kill everybody in like in like the, like probably like the most unique death because the way to describe it is that the mummies have a sort of a convex Lara Croft Lara yeah Croft yeah yeah kind of like just imagine like the old like PS one Lara Croft chest type thing so he gets crushed between two of them so essentially they give him like an internal decapitation yeah but it's like two mummies trying to hug and he got stuck in the middle yeah exactly. How how dare you try and stop our love, you evil poacher. <laughs> so 
A lot of people will recognize the logic puzzle that was present in the story when Sarah's trapped in the tube and you've got like the two Osiren guards. One of them will always tell the truth and one of them will always lie. You get to ask them one question and you have two buttons to select or whatever. It was done in the labyrinth with the two doors. Mm. It's done a lot. Um, It's from Frank Kafka's 1926 novel, The Castle. I remember that puzzle because it helped me in a uh, university uh, logistics class I was taking. Or logic class I was taking. We were talking about logic in something, can't remember what it was. And our lecturer posed this question. And he's like, oh, blah, blah, blah. I was like, ask one of them what the other one would say. Yeah. And then do the opposite. And he was like, oh, like, how do you know that? Do you know it from whatever? I was like, no, I know it from Pyramids of Mars. <laughs> <laughs> See, people, classic who can teach you things. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Uh, science fiction got me lots of bonus points in school. Except for when I had to explain how I knew so much about the Amish. <laughs> yeah. The X-Files season one episode, Gender Bender, really doesn't do the Amish justice. <laughs> <laughs> so, lastly, before we get on to our cast, Michael Sheard, uh, who plays Lawrence, he didn't really know how to perform the scene where he goes into the TARDIS. Mm-hmm. And then he sort of decided it was his job to live the dream of the children in the audience. And... It works brilliantly. We'll talk about it more, I'm sure, in character discussion. But he just decided that, like, you know, oh, should Lawrence be, you know, concerned? Should be he be wary? And he's like, no, no, just go for it, hundred and ten percent. All the kids in the audience wish that could be them. Do it for them. Hmm. That was his mentality. So let's go on to our cast. So as Lawrence, like I just said, we have Michael Sheard. This is story three of six from Michael. We previously saw him in The Ark and in The Mind of Evil. And we'll see him again in The Invisible Enemy, Castrovala. 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 That's how I typed that wrong. And Remembrance of the Daleks. I can't remember that when we previously discussed him. Like, So Michael mm. Sheard is Admiral Ozzel from Empire yes, Strikes Back. Did we discuss the Ozzel is a, is a rebel sympathizer theory? I can't remember. We did discuss Michael when we were doing Mind of Evil. Yeah. I can't remember back that far. Yeah, I'm trying to remember it as well. Like I'm like, that's Do you want to discuss it again? Yeah, we're like, yeah, we'll find out. We've got a few minutes, like and plus Kenobi is as of recording this, Kenobi is coming out tomorrow. So Very true. Uh, yeah, the Admiral Ozzel is a secret rebel sympathizer by virtue of the fact that he as, as a career admiral, should know not to exit hyperspace too early to give them chance to escape. And he was constantly, like, and he was also saying, like, oh, we should just, like, avoid the planets that have less because, you know, they, it, it's just a waste of time and resources. Mm. I just always remind me of, like, I I kind of hate when people are like, oh, stormtroopers can't aim. Let's hmm. explain it in the first movie. It, like, <laughs> they let them escape. Hmm. But also, stormtroopers are shooting at our protagonists. Mm. They're always going to miss. It's also amazing how in The Lord of the Rings, you've got all these people attacking, and somehow, with the exception of Sean Bean, who's always going to die, yeah, he is, uh, they all miraculously survive. It's like it's called plot armor. But <laughs> plot armor is stronger than stormtrooper mm. armor. But also the thing is, like, you know, like, oh, stormtroopers can't hit. Like, I'm sorry if you remember at the very start of the movie, two, count them, 
two stormtroopers die when they initially make the breach into the fucking blockade runner and they successfully kill the entire fucking guard the waiting for them. I was yeah. al- I was always dumbfounded with the fact that the Alderanian guards can't shoot for shit in such a narrow confine. Yeah. Um but yeah, I yeah. I, I don't know why it always pisses me off people like, oh the stormtroopers can't stupid or like that stormtrooper versus red shirt joke. Yeah. Of like <laughs> stormtrooper shoots missed. at a red shirt, he misses and the red shirt dies anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well like, I think it was like statistically proven that's actually safer to be a red shirt in the TOS compared yeah, to because like, there's more of them. Yeah. It's more of them. <laughs> anyway again we're not talking star trek either no but this is what happens like whenever we talk about anything let's continue so we as ibrahim namin we have peter mayock mm-hmm. this is the first of two appearances for peter we'll see him again in the deadly assassin his non-who credits include the face of fu manchu the right people zed cars and my old man peter passed away in 1988 1998 pardon we haven't seen zed cars in a while we haven't seen that kind of thing. We've had a lot of repeat people. I don't list the previously on repeat people because I've already said it before. Well, I suppose like we're coming into the area where a lot of people wouldn't have been on Z cards. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Marcus Scarman is Bernard Archer. This is the second and final appearance for Bernard. We previously saw and discussed him as Bregan in The Power of the Daleks. Mm-hmm. Finally, at Sutek, as I mentioned, we have Gabriel Wolf. This is the first of two stories for Gabriel, who did also do the voice of Horus, although he was uncredited. We will hear him again in The Impossible Planet and the Satan Pit, which is a two-parter, so I'm counting it as one story, mm-hmm. where he is Satan, yeah. <laughs> basically. He does the voice. Yeah. Um, he also contributed to a number of audio stories across the years, including stuff with Big Finish and also with BBC. His non-who credits include Knights of the Round Table, Rob Roy, the 1961 version, The Boy from Space, Honey Lane, and another one we haven't heard in a while, Emergency War 10. Hmm. Actually, on the subject of him playing Satan, the hmm. the doctor says that one of Sutek's aliases is Satan in this. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I, I was thinking about that when I was watching this kind of going, oh, like, but he played that. But I think it's it's an alias. Yeah. It doesn't mean that he's the definitive. Yeah. He's not the Satan. Yeah. Ah, Satan. Because I suppose like this is like one of those things of where, like, because according to the the, the demons, mm. aliens from the planet Deimos were the kind of inspiration for a lot of the horned deities uh, or religious figures in yeah. the world. So... But yeah, no, I actually, I, I kind of like this as well. Like, is that like, you know, could, could be buying into it or just kind of go, yeah, I'm him. <laughs> whatever, whatever you or want. Or wibbly wobbly timey wimey Doctor Who continuity ain't worth shit. <laughs> yep, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. So, thank you very much for a wonderful trivia spot, as always. Yes, we did get a, we did get a sm- small bit sidetracked, but fuck it. <laughs> Our podcast, we know the fuck about Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and if you've been listening to us from the start, you're well used to it by now. <laughs> and if you want the abbreviated version, just listen to the, supplement, yeah. to the <laughs> rambling. <laughs> Supplemental is not mission logged up. Listen to the rambling on Wednesday. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, as always, we now we come to the character discussion. So we have the Doctor, the companions of Sarah Jane and Lawrence Scarman. Mm-hmm. Uh, the villains of Namine 
and Sutek. Why do you not call Ibrahim by his first name? I don't know. <laughs> I because yeah, I I, <laughs> I made the effort to call Lawrence Lawrence Scarman. So yeah, Ibrahim Namin. Yep. Um, I like the name Ibrahim. It's a nice name. Um, Sutek and on rewatch, I was just mm. gonna because we were talking last week about Sorensen. You know, Sorensen mm. is a victim because yes. this Scarman is essentially like it's it's Scarman is a meat puppet. That that's yes. all he is. Like so, he's not an actual individual entity. He's an extension of Sutek's will. Yes. So. I feel kind Problem of character. Yeah, I was gonna say I feel bad calling Marcus Scarman like a villain, yeah. but it's just like a bodysuit, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I wanted to make that distinction. Was, yeah, so like when you listen back, uh, when you listen, if you choose to listen to the initial draft on when uh, on Wednesday, yeah, you'll be in for a bit of a shock. <laughs> so, uh, I think I started off the doctor last week. I can't. I, I never remember these things yeah. <laughs> to the point where yeah. Paul makes one of us over it. Yeah. Okay, I'll go first. Yeah. Screw it. <laughs> the doctor in this one. Mm. <sighs> Sometimes watching it, I find it really difficult. Mm-hmm. He is so angry and brusque mm-hmm. for so much of the story and with everybody. Mm-hmm. Like, he's really quite antagonistic to Sarah throughout the story. He's constantly sniping at her and sort of making little digs at her. Like, when he's like, you know, are you going to help or are you going to stand there? It's like, you didn't tell her to do anything. Or like when he gives out to her about, like, dropping the jelly knife. How the hell was she meant to know it would blow up? Mm-hmm. Do you know? And he just seems to get really snippy with her throughout. Also, he turns on Lawrence really quickly. Mm-hmm. And in any other story, it would have been like a fleeting anger. But in this one, it lingers. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Like, if you think back to Cybermen. Yeah. Where, you know, Harry Sullivan is an imbecile. But then he gets over it literally the next scene. Whereas here, this sort of lingers a lot with, with Lawrence, which I think is unfair. Even We just mentioned there, like, well, like a minute ago, Sorensen. Give, yeah. Giving Sorensen the, you know, the, the noble end. The option yeah. of a noble end. Yeah, um, were it not for the scene in the beginning where we're blatantly told he's having a bit of a midlife crisis, I would have wondered what happened to our doctor because Tom's doctor has always been he can be very serious and when he's being serious he means it. Mm-hmm. But he's also very jovial and happy and quirky and he does things in his own little alien way. So if it wasn't for the scene in the beginning, <laughs> I would have been like, who are you and what did you do with my doctor? Because you, sir, are a completely different person. I actually have a sort of answer to that. Mm. He's fucking terrified. True, but he's like this from the fucking start. Well, like, see, this is the thing now, right? Is that if you if you, if you track the timeline, okay? Mm. <laughs> oh, wibbly wobbly. If you, if you track the timeline of the story, yes, midlife crisis. You know, like, I walk in eternity, and he's like, I'm a time lord. Oh, I know you're a time lord. Like, that that's a wonderful moment. And in our sort of, like, how do you solve a problem like Maria fucking moment. But, like, once he comes out, one, okay, TARDIS lands, and then it's like, you know, okay, something of an, if you, what you're saying is true, something of an incalculable power has managed to get through the TARDIS shielding. Yeah. And we've seen what can't get through the TARDIS shielding. So then it's like, okay, investigate, 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 you know, like, ah, da, 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 da. He meets Lawrence, he's happy out with his, uh, like, everything is run of the mill 
Doctor Who until such a time as he hears the name Sutek. At which point then it's everything we do has to be done towards stopping Sutek because I know, but he just comes across as a bit of a dick. Even if it Oh Jason no, like, I'm, the Daleks. I'm, yeah, no. Jason of the Daleks. Yeah. Very serious, very important. Mm. Doesn't snipe at his friends. Yeah. Okay, I'm not saying like that it's like an excuse. Mm. But it I that's that's the that's the framework for why he's so snippy. But again, like if you think about it, um that he has told Davros, it was actually kind of a, a plot point towards the end, that mm. other races outside of the Time Lords have been capable of stopping Daleks. Now, obviously with your great effort and has to be alliances but Daleks and Cybermen and Ice Warriors and whoever else they're capable of being stopped by the other entities within the universe Mm. the doctor tells us that it took 740 other Osirens who are more powerful than Time Lords to stop Sutek all true Mm. but before he finds out about Sutek he's still a snippy fucker so I'm giving him the midlife crisis and then the Sutek stuff on top of it. Yeah. But he's snippy from the get-go. Well, yeah, okay, yeah. So the midlife, but that's what I'm saying. Like the midlife crisis is sort of like, you know, like, I agree at the start. But then it kind of, once they land in the Priory, it then kind of comes a small bit of a run of, like, the normal flow of events in the Doctor Who story, I think. Yeah, I don't know. I, I still think that it's not... I don't, we'll talk about it later on um, yeah. in my overall, but mm-hmm. um, it's nothing. However, what I will say, it's like, it sounds like I've been shitting on him the whole story. <laughs> However, there are still moments of the Doctor we love. I particularly mm-hmm. love, while I hate the way he turns on Lawrence later, mm-hmm. I love the way he is when he first meets him. Mm-hmm. You know, up until the mummy attack when he turns on Lawrence, he clearly has great time for the man. He gives in to his childish wonder. It's brilliant. Yep. Like, that's fantastic. We have the Doctor being the scientist. We have the Doctor being alien and looking at things differently. All of that is great. And then we obviously have the Doctor versus Sutek, mm-hmm. which is a phenomenal scene. Played brilliantly by Tom. Like, we have never seen the Doctor overpowered in such a way before. It's absolutely terrifying. Mm-hmm. It's so good. Like I said, my only issue is that he leaves things to linger mm-hmm. a lot longer than we've seen him do before. And yeah, I can kind of understand, like you said, like it's a more dangerous situation, but we haven't seen this doctor be this way before. Hmm. I don't like him this way. Oh yeah, like it's, as you kind of say, like imagine it's like your favorite sibling fucking having a go at you because of an external thing, like, you know, or them taking out your, but, but then when you find out what it is, no, you're still upset, but you can frame it in a, you, you can, yeah, you can... I was like, don't take out your frustrations on her, like, it's yeah. not her fault. No. Do you know? Um, so that for me, it's a bit of a mixed bag. So I think it's a fantastic performance by Tom. Mm-hmm. Fucking brilliant. And even the snippy bits are well played by Tom. Yeah. I just personally, I don't like him being snippy. <laughs> <laughs> kind of brings us back to the early days of Doc Bill. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. And... But I suppose, like, yeah. again, it's, I suppose, like, the... Um, it's kind of reinforced by his statement, you know, at the start, like, you know, I'm a Time Lord, I walk in eternity. It's like, it, it reminds us that he is alien. Yeah. Yeah. But then I also he always has been. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, but, but what I'm saying is like that, I think at times 
we forget, like we like we see like you know like the doddery old man in like in the in the the the, the doddery old man or like you know the the hoboish clown or like the debonair James Bond esque person. Like mm-hmm. you, you kind of forget, like, oh yeah, this this guy's actually a fucking alien, you know? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. How about you? Um, <laughs> I feel like I was shit on him. Every one, it was no, just that no, bit but, really bothered me. But no, see, like, but like, those are kind of like, those are really good points to bring up, like, because, like, very snippy, as you say, very snippy towards you know Sarah Jane. Like, even when she tries to lighten the mood, he's not having any of it, you know? Yeah. Uh, which is which is so different for that. Doctor. Yeah, like you know, because he's when she dropped down the jellic knight, uh, mm. like he said, you know, one sneeze could set it off, and uh, he goes, "Can you find any detonator?" She goes, "No, uh, nothing. Maybe he sneezed to set it off." You know, just like yeah. that sort but of. He like, just he just keeps glaring at her yeah. and making faces at her, and I'm like, and like it's I suppose like it's an element of hypocrisy, like because he's made gallows humor to her before all the time, but when yeah. she makes it back, it's like kind of you know now is not the time and it's like ah fuck off um but it's i suppose it's kind of like um an issue i had with the third doctor and joe it's like stop creating this atmosphere where she can be comfortable enough to do this and then round Mm. on her for it It, it's it's not fair um so like yeah no that like as i said i'm not disagreeing with any of the points you're making Mm. but i think that this and this is the one thing that i love is that and like the only other being that kind of comes into my head that would has like as much raw power as Sutek potentially was Ome- uh, was Omega. Mm. Okay. But there was an element of hero worship there because of who yeah. Omega was to the Time Lords. I think the only other person outside of Omega, and unfortunately, because of the way that story was done, it was done more lighthearted and whatever. It's like Celestial Toymaker. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's like a cosmic entity. Like he's like yeah. a, a celestial. But in terms thing. of in terms of a villain that the Doctor has oh, faced, you exactly. know, I think Cecil Toymaker, though the story was a bit more fun. Yeah. You you sort of maybe stack him up with with the other two as well. Oh yeah, definitely. Like, like if you if you want to push in the sense of like Celestial Toymaker is like a god, or Sirens are essentially demigods. Um, mm. that's the way that's kind of built here, but like, I love the fact that the Doctor is just legitimately scared. Like he, mm. like it's like okay, I kind of got the, I've got to cut the bullshit. Like this is as serious as it gets. Um. So yeah, there's a lot more aggression, and he's a lot shorter with people than he normally would mm. be. Um. But we we get that we do get in snippets and a very we get the full spectrum of his emotions. Like when he kind of comments on Marcus. Uh, oh, sorry, Lawrence building the radio telescope for tele- telescope forty years earlier, mm. like it's like oh, like you know, a fellow scientist, and it's like you know, Lawrence is like really fucking happy because you get the impression like that his field of science at that at this time at this point in time in history, it's kind of like you know, ah, you're like one of those fucking guy you know, eyes to the heavens type thing, you know. Mm. Um, so. Like I, I like that, and you know he's encouraging, and again that scene of the TARDIS is brilliant. And Michael Shear like just fucking plays that wonderfully. He he really does, mm. and like Tom's smile is amazing. Um, but yeah, like and it's like the def- like the defiance that we've come to see from the Doctor in the, in you know bad situations before, it's there the, the customary defiance. Uh, I love the scene where. He realizes that Sarah Jane has a 50-50 chance at survival. 
and he's mm. like, you know, what have I done? Like, I've dragged you into this, and now I, I, I don't know if I can get you out. Mm. And like, I'd say like he, like he'll fucking be like praying to heart, like tanking Horace, like for giving me this actual fucking out that, yeah. I, that I can solve. Um, because he is heartbroken when he realizes that like it's a 50-50 shot that I could lose my best friend. Mm. So I love that. Um, there's just a lot of great character work here. Like this is probably yeah. like in his entire runs so far. Like we've talked about, you know, how easily he's kind of fit the role for the last couple of stories. Mm. I would say alongside Genesis, this is probably his best character work so far. I think so too. Yeah. I'd agree. I'd agree. So moving on to the companions. We have our standard or our, was it, our, our standard our, our, stand, our standard bearer for companion at the moment <laughs> is Sarah Jane. Mm. She's such a badass in this episode. It's it, she really is. She really is. And like I'm I have the target novelization in front of me. I'm just skimming through it to try and find if Terence explains mm-hmm. why Sarah is so good with a rifle. Because it's not just that she's good with it. She's a crack like, shot. She's a crack shot with it. Like and Elizabeth Sladen wanted to play that Sarah would kind of fumble with it. She wouldn't mm. know what she was doing. And Paddy Russell was like, no, no. She's fully capable. Can hit the target. No bother. And Terrence doesn't really explain it in the book. Um, hey, isn't this the thing where she nearly fucking blew out her eardrums? Yeah. So they put her in the little corner and told her to fire this rifle. Didn't give her any ear protection. And so the sound ricocheted around her and then it blew out her eardrums. The poor woman was deaf for the rest of the day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're coming here talking about service revolvers <laughs> um, but like there's one moment that kind of detracts from Sarah Jane here a small bit mm. and it's like oh let's go to let's go you know back to 1980 because we know that his plan won't work and I'm like in your very first adventure with the third doctor it, it was all about the ramifications of someone interfering with the course of human history. See, what I like about this one, though, right, okay. is... And I discussed this a bit last week. Last week, Sarah said the same thing. Why don't we just leave? Mm. Do you know, which is a completely legitimate fucking question to mm. ask. And here, it's all the more important because she's like, but we know that Sutek didn't do it like we know the world wasn't destroyed because i'm from 1980 and maybe you can say yeah that in the time warrior she faced a similar thing but also in the time warrior like she got to know those people as well Mm. do you know like by the time she met up with the doctor and go back to the towers again she'd made friends with hal and with um his his lord and lady and stuff so here though last week she's like why don't we just go and the doctor's like because you know, we need to order these people, my friend catechism, she's like, fine. Here though, she feels better saying it because she quote unquote knows Sutek didn't destroy the world. She's like, mm. but nineteen eighty is only seventy years from now. I'm from nineteen eighty. Mm. It's fine. Like I think it's because the time frame is shorter. She's like, but that didn't happen. I would know, <laughs> Do you know? Um and I love the way they explain it. I think it's brilliantly done. Because the doctor doesn't gloat about it. No. He lets her see the ramifications for herself. Mm-hmm. 
and she makes the decision to stay. That no, and that part I love. It's this. Mm. It's this fucking Sarah Connor esque, you know, steely determination where she just mm. goes, "We've got to go back." Yeah. Um. So I love that, and you kind of get the sense that the doctor's a bit proud. Um. Mm. But, like, so we talked about like the the aggression and the short temperedness and everything that the doctor was. She is mm. the complete counter to that here, which makes him such an effective partnership and double act yeah because she tries to bring the brevity that he would have done to i suppose at least attempt to reassure like that we're going to win as opposed mm. to like we're st- i think in any given situation the doctor was like you know like we can win this where it's, mm. it's here it's like we're struggling we're we've lost unless we can actually pull a rabbit out of our hat type thing yeah and she's trying to emulate that here i think yeah well i love how like she does not give in to his grumpy mood no like, he's a grump from the word go and she just keeps playing like whatever like when they get to the barrier and they get to the um canopic jar that mm. they're gonna turn off the barrier or whatever she's talking and looking around to see what's happening and he's like are you gonna stand there or are you gonna help mm. it's really bitter about it mm-hmm. and she's around and says your shoes need repairing <laughs> yeah <laughs> and whatever it is about the way Liz delivers that line i wet myself yeah every time what there's something about the way she says it but i love how she does not give in no he is a grumpy ass so much of the time like even like when he passes out from the backlash of going near the sarcophagus the first time mm-hmm. and they pull him into the um the priest hole mm-hmm. when he wakes up he's all grumpy and like pissed off and she's just not having none of it like no she doesn't even enter it's not even that she she tells him to cop to her she doesn't even entertain it and the only time that she calls him on it is when um lawrence, lawrence dies, dies. And... and he's in her mind too fucking callous yeah for the moment and to be honest i agree with her like you see, this is the thing now, right? He he raises the legitimate counterpoint that a lot more people will die unless we stop Sutek. But mm. I agree, like I would have hoped that a small acknowledgement of what Lawrence had helped them do. Like, you know, in the yeah. sense of like, you know, something to say, like, you know, like the best thing we can do for him now is to make sure that no one else dies. Some line yeah. of dialogue to acknowledge the acknowledge while still getting across the point that we need to act. Yeah, and I'll talk about it more when we get to Lawrence's discussion. But I think that is sort of, you know, it's Sarah kind of going, look, you've been in a mood this whole time, and I get it. I get why you're in a mood. But, like, you've now gone so far beyond being in a mood that you're being a bit callous. So someone has just died. I go, four men have died. Hmm. And she, yeah, I know, but this one's lying right fucking next to you. We thought he was fine. He was helping us. Like, hello. And we've gotten to know him within like the space of like what is it like the forty minutes that we've been here, you know? Yeah. So um, I know he says like you know, oh, so I'm not being human, and you know the way he sort of throws it back in her face that like you know he's not again going back like he's not human. It's like, well, you don't need to be human to have some humanity, Mm -hmm. which is what she was asking you for. Yep. Do you know? Um, 
I think one of the things I actually really like about the story is completely random. I love how Sarah has random Egyptology knowledge. Yeah, I actually I quite like that because again, it's it's not the doctor educating; it's the companion educating. Yeah, so I love that. Like, because you know, particularly you know, you know, later on, you know. We kind of had a little bit with the changeover from Liz Shaw to Joe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that, you know, some later people have criticized the classic series that like all the companions did was stood there and asked the doctor why and what and whatever. But Sarah Jane contributes to the education mm-hmm. part, which I think is really good. That They don't have to have the doctor explain everything. Mm-hmm. She can be explaining while he's off doing his own thing. It kind of reminded me a lot of Liz Shaw in that way where she could explain while he was doing. Yeah something else and i and i think as well like you know with the change over to joe yes joe may have asked a lot more questions so the doctor could explain but as we kind of said to counter that joe drove the plot a lot in a lot of her stories Mm. yeah um i said i am gutted that there is no explanation in this book about sarah being a crack shot with a rifle um i am going to go with my head cannon that i discussed two years ago which is the unit fellas wanted her to be able to take care of herself and so they trained her on basic weaponry and for some reason rifles she was ace i i, I just like it was like benton's idea of a first date <laughs> <laughs> but if you're someone who only knows sarah jane from uh, the revival and from the sarah jane adventures this is very very different because mm. in sarah jane adventures she's totally anti-gun yeah altogether like she hates the use of guns. Well, like, um, yeah. Well, like, the thing is, like, she. I think this is the only time she actually wields a gun in her entire run on the, the show. But I suppose, like, yeah. But also, like, it's 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 established that she's a fucking crack yeah, shot. With yeah. it, though. <laughs> but like, again, it's the whole uh, we kind of mentioned earlier on Obi Wan Kenobi, great shot, but you know, so uncivilized. <laughs> uh, Another thing I will actually mention about mm-hmm. the Sarah Jane Adventures is that um, the Sarah Jane Adventures has a very small nod back to this. In, I think it's season four of the Sarah Jane Adventures, where um, there's a scene where it's Sarah Jane and the kids are watching the Mars rover. Yeah. <laughs> and it, you know, it counts down, counts down, counts down. And then she has Mr. Smith's cut off the connection. Yeah. And Luke is like, oh, looks like NASA lost another Mars probe. And because you see in the distance a pyramid, a pyramid yeah. on Mars. As you always like, Sarah's been protecting this secret for years. Mm. I love it. I love that. It's not relevant to this story, but I love it. It's a nice carryover. I think yeah, it's really cool. exactly. Uh, anything else? No. I love Liz as Sarah Jane. I love Liz in the story. I think Sarah Jane in the story is amazing. I have one last point to make. Yep. And it's that I think it's one thing I love is like the acceptance, the acceptance of her fate in the 50-50 gamble of the logic puzzle. Mm. Because, like, once the doctor, you know, goes to make this question, like, she's not screaming, she's not beating the glass, she's not doing anything like that. It's, I think it's an acceptance of, like, of what's about to happen. Yeah. I do love how, like, when she initially gets caught up, she starts panicking, and he kind mm. of looks at her to calm down, she's like, fine. And obviously, like, she's been there for a while, like, yeah. And, and she starts she, panicking again. He just types relax X. backwards on the glass. And she's like, oh, relax. Fine. <laughs> sure. And like, she just sort of like, like yeah. she just sort of sits down and like, in the sort of like loads of it. She's like, cool, whatever you need. Take your time. I'm just sitting in here in the tube. <laughs> um, but yeah. No. 
Great story for Sarah Jane as well. Yeah. So now we have Lawrence. <sighs> Lawrence Garman. Hmm. Little boy in a man's body. <laughs> I've always wondered, why does Lawrence live in the lodge and Marcus lives in the fuck off house by himself? Like, what's the deal with that? I get the impression that Lawrence just wants his own space to do his own experiments. No, he could take over a wing of the massive fucking house, but yeah. maybe maybe he doesn't want Marcus kind of coming in and being, you know, fusty dusty, kind of saying, would you please keep it down or any of that kind of shit? Maybe. I just, I just thought it was a bit unfair that he was sort of relegated to the lodge while Marcus gets the huge fuck up by himself. Um, I do love, though, how he gets... I, I kind of wonder that he gets caught up in the whole thing. I don't mean caught up in the whole thing, but, mm. like, you know, when he meets the Doctor and Sarah, and, like, he, he's just, like, so excited by everything. Mm-hmm. And, like, the way he is in the TARDIS is just... It's so cute. It is, like, yeah. the most adorable interest. Like, you're going to say it's impossible. I am. <laughs> I am going to say that. This is, like, that work, like, you know, those... Uh, those stories by that chap mr wells you know like like yeah. yeah i love that that's actually one of the things i love about um his little lodge is that his little radio thing mm-hmm. is very hg wells-esque it is it is do you know like um very time machine looking just mm. in terms of like the way that they built it which i thought was really really cool mm. for me though there's two heartbreaking moments for lawrence one is when the Doctor and Sarah Jane, you know, keep going off. Um, also, don't back. I love that Sarah never let herself be left behind. Yeah. <laughs> Several times the Doctor tried to leave her behind. She's like, fuck you. I'm going with you. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, but when Marcus goes to help them and the Doctor's like, when they're going to get the the jellic knife or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, the Doctor and Sarah Jane go to leave and Lauren's like, shall I come with you? And the Doctor's like, no, 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 we're, we're fine. He's like, you think I'll let you down again, don't you? And it is the saddest thing hmm. because he's like a puppy yeah. who made one mistake and now he feels absolutely shit about it. Mm-hmm. And it kind of goes back to what I was saying about the doctor and his reaction to Lawrence's death. The doctor's like, you know, if you want to help, why don't you untie that mummy? That's the last conversation they had. Yeah. It's the last thing they said to each other. Mm. Lawrence never got an apology from the doctor for being an asshole. No. Or not even an apology, but a sort of look, you know, I know why you did what you did, but, you know, like they never really laid that to bed properly. Mm. And you just have Lawrence sort of feeling a bit shit mm-hmm. about himself. Yeah. Which then leads into the second devastating moment is when he reunites with Marcus. Yeah. And when Marcus is killing him. Yeah, that is begging- horrible. And he's begging him not to, or to begging him to stop, yeah. Yeah, it is absolutely gutting. And I think of the um sort of extra character deaths that we've seen, I think Lawrence is up there with the, with the sort of gut punch yeah. ones of them that we've had in the past. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, no, um, definitely. And what's even worse is that you can imagine he would have been a great companion. Yeah, like like that's another kind of like for at least one story, just to just mm. to try them out. I think him going on an adventure with them would have been great. 
Yeah. Like, if you've seen uh, Jodie's uh, kind of season 13, I don't know, Flux, basically, Doctor yeah. Who Flux. If you've seen that run, he's kind of the proto Jericho. <sighs> Professor Jericho. Yeah. Like, like, I sort of get the feeling that Jericho was kind of based in some ways on Lawrence. He's kind of like a nice nod to Lawrence in a way. Hmm. Yeah. Like, Do you know? I, like, I, I would be surprised that there was a small bit of an inspiration there because Jericho is very much the forward thinking man of science for his time. Hmm. And he's, I, th- I think because there's no personal connection as such for Jericho in flux, we'll get there. He, hmm. That's why he's, he can, I suppose, stands out a small bit more. Like I, I I don't know if I've said it on the podcast, but I've said to other people. I think of all the supporting characters to come out of the revival era, Jericho is probably in the top three for me. Yeah, anyway. Like as in like not com- not normal companion, like but supporting mm. character, definitely within the top three. Like I I love and Kevin McNally did a fucking fantastic job. Uh but back to Michael Sheard and Lawrence Scarman. Um. The first time we watched this two years ago, I well, think, the first time we watched it for a podcast yeah for, two for years the ago. podcast you and I watched this yeah, several years yeah, ago several years ago and several times. Um, when we did when we did it for the podcast, the, the initial run through, mm. I remember I was a lot harsher to him because I was getting annoyed with the fact how he could accept certain things like the mm. ta- like the TARDIS and or the existence yeah. of the mummies. But he couldn't accept the fact that, you know, your brother is essentially a meat puppet. Like, and I was mm-hmm. going to you know, just come on and get with the fucking program. On rewatching it, though, Lawrence is probably one of the most, like, sympathetic characters I've seen in a very long time in, in terms of the show. Because like, you sympathize with him a lot so much more. Like, he's the younger brother. Yeah. His older brother, who he's clearly fond of, like, very, very fond mm-hmm. of is a meat puppet for an evil deity and he wants like and he's going to try and exhaust anything to try and save him because like again like i suppose that's the whole thing of you know because he never he never talked to marcus like you know he, no. like, he has he, throughout the entire story the only time he ever speaks to him is when marcus actually comes in to fucking kill him so all he has to, is like the doctor's word, like that. It's just like ah, he's just a shell. Like the person that you knew was dead, anything like that. And like he does try to reach out to him, and well, that's his unfortunate doing or like undoing. But I love his childlike wonderment. Like that scene is great. That scene is fan- mm. fantastic. And I but so back to what you're saying there, like around you know his reaction to his brother. The doctor never explains it to Lawrence. No. Lawrence overhears him mm-hmm. saying it to Sarah. Do you he, know? Yeah, he's and it's like it's no wonder the guy still has some hope. Yeah, because he just like you know, what's the hell? I'm gonna get the dialogue there now. Um... Because like when La- when Marcus gets shot, and Lawrence calls out for him, the doctor's like, "Shut up!" Like, yeah, but he doesn't actually explain anything. Like, he doesn't say to Lawrence that, like, hey, this machine will mean that your brother, who we'll talk about in a second, yes. is clearly dead. So clearly he, dead already. Yeah. So he doesn't actually explain it to Lawrence himself. No, so the doctor says to Sarah, well, he's not mm. alive in any real sense. Only Sutek animates him, deprived of his outside contact, 
this of his outside contact, Sutek, will be as powerless as the day Horus left him. So that that's the only thing that he overhears in relation to the control. Yeah. Then, after Lawrence interferes to stop um, the doctor or Sarah Jane from activating the Marco, mm. the radio telescope, he he sa- he snaps to Lawrence. Listen, what we what you're talking about out there is no longer your brother. Sorry, what's walking out there is no longer your brother. It is simply an animated human cadaver. Animated by Sutek, do you understand? So, yeah, there, there's no, like, explanation to Lawrence prior to it. So that's, but, yeah. but like, again, even <laughs> this is actually amazing, because like, we talked about before about stuff like, you know, oh, like, our opinions of stories have changed for, mm. the be- for mostly for the better, I feel. Um yeah. Obviously, some stuff has gone down on the rewatch. Even rewatching a rewatch, my opinion on something has changed significantly <laughs> because I fucking uh, like I started looking more into it. I think actually, to be fair, when people listen to it on Wednesday, mm. my summary is a lot shorter. It's a lot different. The way the, yeah, the entire the entire thing is a lot shorter. Yeah, we were the, long done by now. Yeah, the, the long <laughs> it's 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 very different because of the way that we had it structured. It's less yeah. narrative. Right, mm. and I find like that by going through the by doing it as a narrative description, I pay attention mm. a lot more as opposed to like key story or key points of each episode. I'm making a narrative, and I'm picking up on a lot more things. So when mm. I do eventually get around to it, like you know, it my opinions of stuff have completely changed. So to go back to this, like. I'm completely a lot more sympathetic towards him. I completely understand everything that's going on because in this is the most hammer horror story in terms oh, yeah. of, in terms of like the Philip Hinchcliffe era, I would say. Everything mm. f- falls for beef. No, I might say like, oh, like oh, it's derivative or it's just, you know, because <laughs> of the plan of view. Yeah, no, it's, it's hitting those key story points as to why that those franchises of movies were so fucking successful. You have characters like this that I suppose mm. to the outside like, are just like you know so frustrating like you're shouting the screen why are you doing that but when you put yourself in their shoes all of their actions make perfect sense so mm. like fucking fantastic job on the writing by fucking Robert Holmes here you know or whatever his pseudonym was Steve Harris <laughs> <laughs> um, but I completely agree that I would like to have seen him travel for at least one story and yeah. it speaks to Michael Sheard's versatility as an actor when he can go from playing a, such a fucking prick like Admiral Nozzle to someone <laughs> like, because I remember the character he was in The Mind of Evil. He was the doctor that was looking after the you know the prisoner that had gone through the, the fucking yeah. the process. Like, you know, he was a very sympathetic character there. He would, he's like, he's the type of recurring doctor you'd like to see in the yeah. show. And now we have him here as a really good single story character that unfortunately is a very unfortunate demise mm. but yeah so i would be to see his future stories and how he's in those mm, definitely because I can't really remember any of them <laughs> um, so will we do Marcus as a sort of a lead into the villains yeah I think so yeah because originally we had Marcus down as a villain. Yeah. I think the last time we did this. Yeah, he, he was. But, like, you know, to our conversation last week around... Um, Sorensen. Sorensen. Sorensen was a victim. 
Mm-hmm. And so is Marcus. We don't really get much of the real Marcus. We we, we get one scene. Yeah, we get fuck, That's it. We get about 60 seconds of Professor Marcus Scarman on yeah. screen. Now, I do take issue with him calling the Egyptians savages. Because that makes him out to be a bit of a dick. Yeah, he, he comes across like an archaeologist of the time. Yeah. So, Marcus Scarman, we don't really know much about him. No. Now, he seems to have some good friends. He seems to, you know, be very passionate about his job and whatever. Other than making of-the-time racially insensitive comments. Mm-hmm. Um, no. He's grand. Like, we don't really get to know him that much. You can Okay, I think you get your impression of Marcus Scarman from Lawrence. Because yeah. Lawrence, seems you, like a, Lawrence seems like a really decent person. No. You also get it from... Um, Professor Warlock. Professor Dr. Warlock. Dr. Warlock, yeah, sorry. Because they're friends. Yeah, they're friends. Do you know, and the fact that his friend would stand up for him hmm. so much. Yeah. Now, what I would say is I would say probably... I don't know. I think because we don't see a whole lot of Warlock in it. Mm. Like, well, like, you know, Warlock will say, like, you know, as his best friend, he's a fine upstanding person. Mm. Marcus, or sorry, Lawrence then could completely flip that if that mm. wasn't the case. But no, he reinforces yeah. it by being very much the fact that like, he really, really cares for his brother. So, yeah. It, yeah. Now, as I call him, me- Marcus Sutek, <laughs> as, yeah. as opposed to Marcus Scarman, completely different beast altogether. He is oh. terrifying not only in his power and his invincibility, but just by his presence. Like I said, like, you know, and this this could have been where your comment two years ago came from, but like, you know, why can Lawrence not just get the program? The minute we see Marcus, like his face, mm-hmm. you're like, oh, that guy's dead. Yeah. He's a walking corpse. In, in a very hammer horror way. Oh, the makeup on him. Like his hands are so white. Do you know? It's ridiculous. Do you know? It's just like completely like it's completely like bleached out. Mm. Um it he he just looks terrifying. And actually like see this is the thing is that they just to kind of go to my point about Lawrence is that again like <laughs> whatever is left of Marcus with inside the mm. shell like Charles tried to come out because he seems to recall um like he's like you know Lawrence and Marcus you know brother mm. you know brothers and it's like and then Sutek just like essentially gets rid of the last shred of yeah. humanity within him and then kills kills him but I've said it I remember saying it um way back when but Bernard Archer who plays him has mm. such like distinct features yes. like he really does like i even when he's playing a good a good guy and stuff there is still an element of terror to him because of like his sharp features he's like, he's like in terms mm. of the Christ, christopher lee side of things yeah and the corpse makeup applied to him really fucking emphasizes that so like yeah. spot on casting for uh, he was like just a fantastic choice for that role because he's a great actor first and mm-hmm. foremost. He really is, but his appearance lends to that as well. Mm. Well, the interesting about his appearance is that, like if you compare with another science fiction franchise that has Egyptian gods taking over your mind, mm. the difference with say something like Stargate is that 
the host is still alive. Yep. Whereas here, to the viewer, you hold no hope that Marcus is coming back. No. We know from the minute that black mask disappears, Marcus is gone. Yeah. And it makes you feel all the worse for Lawrence. Mm-hmm. It really, really, really does. So, yeah, like I think last time around we discussed Marcus or <laughs> Scarman Sutek or Meat Scarman mm-hmm. or whatever you want to call him. We discussed him second and we actually discussed Ibrahim first. But now yes. we're actually in a much more sensible way we're discussing him second because (laughs) even though he's only in for one episode the concept of what Ibrahim represents is fucking Mm. scary as well yeah because like the Marcus Sutak right Mm -hmm. is possessed yeah he is an animated cadaver to allow Sutak to move about and the real Marcus clearly died Mm -hmm. He didn't give up willingly, is the feeling I get. Do you know? The difference is with Ibrahim, he fully believes in all this shit. Hmm. Like, this isn't, like, he's not mind controlled. This is just who Ibrahim is. Yeah. And he says that his family has protected Sutek and like, been ready to be servants of Sutek for generations. Like, this is like Cthulhu esque cult mentality. Yeah. Um, like I one major I suppose uh, talking point about him outside of the what he represents okay mm. is that in one sense it, it is completely understandable as to why he is killed off in the first episode because mm. it helps set up how ruthless a villain uh, Sutek is by killing mm. one of his servants and it allows for Scarman to be a much more effective emotional villain, especially mm. towards like Lawrence being a component of the the TARDIS crew this time around. Mm. So for emotional villain purposes, absolutely kill Namin off in the very first episode. Mm. However, if they decide to kill Scarman in like in that one minute thing, if it's just some nameless extra who plays Professor Scarman and is killed for like daring to find or daring to encroach upon mm. Sutek's territory, having Namin or Ibrahim be like the, the, the Scarman figure for the rest of the story mm. is also fuck is as creepy because it's the fanaticism and what he is willing to do to serve Sutek throughout the story makes him such like a terrifying entity. <laughs> Yeah. If, if they had did gone down that route, either way, like I'm happy, like you know, if they had gone with it that way, perfect. But they've gone with it in a way that actually makes for a much more emotional horror story. Mm. I will say one thing about Ibrahim: mm-hmm. he can't play the organ for shit. Ah, oh, well, it's a shit organ. So <laughs> <laughs> like the organ is the way that he communicates with Sutek. The music is part of the connection. Yeah, like <laughs> no offense to the guy who did the music for this story, but Ibrahim can't play the organ for shit. It's not even just the fact that like the sound is crap, but also your man's hands just doing the same three keys, yeah. like over and over again. <laughs> he's no, he's no phantom, I tell you that much. <laughs> no. no, I was gonna watch him going, ah, Ibrahim, organ playing is not your not your bag, is it? Um, wh- one thing I will say, this isn't meant to be in Ibrahim's defense, but when it came to the humans in and around the area. Mm-hmm. Oh, the racial prejudice is fucking to 90, I think. 
Well, yeah, but he didn't like. He didn't want to kill Collins, mm. the butler. No, he eventually would have just told him to leave. Yeah, he didn't want to shoot Warlock. Warlock just wanted him to leave. Do you know? Like he doesn't go out. Like he's not the one who, you know, is like, you know, killing off everybody willy nilly. He's trying to get them to leave on their own. Until such a time as uh, Sutek is preparing to arrive, in which case it's ah, it's open season. <laughs> yeah, but like, but once he shoots Warlock, he's fucked anyway. Yeah, Do you know, you know, he he shot a guy. Like at that point, he's fucked. Hmm. But before that, like. He doesn't threaten Warlock with a gun. He doesn't... like. He's been living in the house with Collins this entire fucking time. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Do you know? Um, and it's not like... It's not like, oh, well, you know, he didn't want to kill anybody because clearly Sutek rising, Sutek being the lord of death, mm. people would have died anyway. But it's not like he just moved in and just slaughtered everybody. <laughs> yeah. Do you know? He would have been much happier to be subtle and... Mm. Just slowly do it. But also, yeah, the racial prejudice. Like, I love the fact when um, Warwick is like, I'll call the police. And he's like, what? And tell them that there's a foreigner living in Marcus mm. Garman's house. <laughs> yeah. And I go, go on, you racist fucker. Go on. Call <laughs> 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 them. Oh. But, um, yeah. Uh, so I suppose we might as well talk about some someone that is inevitable. <laughs> Sutek. Yeah. Um a one off villain I wish had been a recurring one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. Like the power he wields while paralyzed in a chair. Like the re- okay, we, we mentioned the, the, the hand mm-hmm. thing, right? The reason why the hand is there is to keep him still. Mm-hmm. Because Sutek is completely paralyzed. He cannot move at all. And the hand was there to help keep him still. Yeah. like Keep him from moving. It, it, for anyone like that's like seen Game of Thrones or anything like that, you know, in the terms of oh, a crown for a king. Like, mm. it's, he's, he's locked in stasis, sitting like the pharaohs of old, you know, up on yeah. his throne, you know, with his arms crossed and this type of shit. Or like no, his, his, hand, hand, his, sorry, his hands on his uh, lap. As if he's, you know, like in court. You know, like att- yeah. attending uh, that type of thing. So it's sort of a mocking prison. Yeah. Um, and the, the amount of power he wields from that position mm. is insane. Mm. Like, well, this... I'm going to talk about more of my overall, like in terms of like how he's with the doctor, but like, I almost didn't like the ending. Mm. I didn't like the fact that I was like, oh, he lived for 7,000 years. And Sarah's like, Sutek is dead. I'm like, I don't put such a nail on it. Like, yeah, it's kind of like Salamander. I would have loved to have seen Salamander come back again during uh, Troughton's run. I really would have. Yeah. Um, Sutek is, I think, because it was just topical at the time when we did that first recording, but he mm. is, he reminds me so much of Thanos. He really does. Mm. The ultimate disdain for life and the proponents of life, you know? Yeah, whereas the difference between Thanos and Sutek is Thanos we see through Endgame. Yeah. And through Infinity War as well. Mm -hmm. That Thanos actually 
supports life. Well, okay, sorry. But I, I'll make a distinction. In a scalable way. <laughs> I'll make a distinction. Comic book Thanos. Okay, I haven't read yeah. comic book okay. Thanos, so I can't okay. okay, so in the comics, death is an actual entity. Death is, mm. death is, a, a, is a thing, and he is in love with death. And in order to appease death, he sets about initially doing the whole, I'll kill half of everything. And then that scales to, I'll kill every single fucking thing that lives ever. Mm. Um, so that's where I'm like, okay, that's where the suit tech reminds of. Like, mm. the thing is, yeah, he's this ultimate disdain for life and all the proponents of life. And he has a near limitless power to back up that disdain. <laughs> like, yeah. it's, if, uh, again, using another nerd term for fucking Dragon Ball Z, this isn't even my final form, <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> um, like, so, as a villain, he really, really embodies the phrase, you come at the king, you best not miss, because, mm. like, you will only ever have one chance to stop me. And yeah. as the doctor pointed out, it took 740 of my fucking fellow you know, Osirens to just imprison me. You know? Yeah. Um, that's, that's fucking spooky. Yeah. Uh, so another thing that I love is that his voice never goes above anything other than a growl. Like, mm. he's not like Omega, like, you know, just railing and very dramatic and shouting and like, you know, Brian mm. Blessed or anything like that. It's like, it just adds to his menace. The fact that he's so evil, calm, and composed, and he fucking just make like he just mentally batters the doctor, and it doesn't face him whatsoever. And like you, I'm gutted they fucking killed him off. And one of the things I find interesting about his interaction with the doctor is that, like, when Sarah Jane is revealed, and mm-hmm. Suja's like a fucking killer. What the fuck do I care? Like, <laughs> get rid of her. And the doctor's like, no. And he's like, why do you care? You're a time lord. Mm. Not on my level, but like, you're a time What the fuck does she matter to you? Mm. But even though he's so much higher and more elevated than mere connection, mm. he still recognizes it as useful. Mm. And that, I think, is is the interesting thing that like he doesn't kill her off. He's like, if the doctor start in any way shows any sense of himself, kill her. Mm. It's like he may not care about connection or whatever, mm. but he recognizes the importance oh, of it as a tool huge. against other people. Uh, one thing I love as well is that like when the doctor t- says says that I'm from Gallifrey in the constellation of Christopherus, mm. he's like Give me the galactic coordinates, like your fucking planetary names. I don't care about. And he has like such this fucking mocking thing. It's like, oh, you're a mm. time lord, and it's like they're nothing to you. Like again, anything that isn't an Osiren is just fucking nothing to you. <laughs> like, and it's like just that god level fucking thing that just makes him. It, it, it's effective. Like, he's not mm. overpowered, he's not overbearing, it's like, you know, oh, f- fuck's sake. It's like, it's just genuinely good acting and good writing. Mm. What I will say is that we, we're we never going to get to see Sutek again. I do hope we get to see the Osirens, though. Absolutely. Because I'm so curious about the Osirens, just in general. Mm. Be- about their culture and, and whatever. Well, see, this is a thing like that... Um, 
fuck it, no, we'll, br- we'll bring it into the overall because it's actually a, a point of mine about the overall. So, okay. yeah. In that case, talk to Stefan. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Uh. So, as we've come to the end of our road, <laughs> we've come to the end of this particular time tunnel. <laughs> um, so, as always, we will give the story a score out of five. So, Trish, I went first last week. You get to go first this week. <laughs> I really struggled with what to score this, right? All right. Because it is an amazing story. Mm. The story itself, the supporting characters, the villain, even the mummies and the weird Lara Croft boobs, it's all awesome. It's fantastic. Like one of the things I love with the doctor in the story is that at one point he has lost. Mm-hmm. The doctor only wins because Sutek doesn't think he needs him anymore. That's it. That's the only reason. Yeah, but 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 same. But the doctor lost. Game over. Yeah. It was done, and like the only thing that saves him at the end is the fact the time it takes a radio wave to travel from Mars to Earth. Yeah. He won on a fluke. Yeah, exactly. So even though like the doctor got you know, got up from like so even though he was given a reprieve, he still fucking lost. Yeah, he lost twice. Essentially, he lost twice. And the thing is, like, we always see the doctor as a larger than life figure. Mm. He knows all. He can outsmart everybody. You know, he is. He walks in eternity. Mm-hmm. Do you know? He is so much more than human. You know, he doesn't see things the same way we do. But Sutek says it himself, he's an ant. Yeah. He's not even an ant. He's like a flea on an ant. Doing... He is so much more below him. And you can imagine for children watching this story at the time mm. and like thinking that he's dead. Mm-hmm. And like it, that must have been like terrifying to watch as a child. Like it, it stops your heart as an adult. Mm-hmm. But as a child, that must have been terrifying. Oh, because to watch. absolutely, because the, the the cliffhanger for part at the end of part three is mm. Sutek. The eyes of his helmet glow bright green, and the Doctor is bathed in that fucking energy. And it, yeah. it's just like he it's uh, he turns to the camera, and the eyes flash, and like that's a mm. pretty fucking intense. This one was actually really good cliffhangers. Like mm. cliffhanger at the end of episode one was Namin Ibrahim being killed. Mm. Uh, in episode two is Sarah Jane being strangled by a mummy yep. and Doctor being fucking attacked by Sutek at the end of Cliffhanger 3. Like, this is yeah. great cliffhangers. Yeah, and like it's Tom's scream mm. at the end of 3 mm-hmm. is brilliant. All of that is fantastic. I love Lawrence. I love everyone else. The only negative part I have mm-hmm. and the bit that causes me to struggle is I really don't like the way the Doctor was so antagonistic towards it. I didn't like it when we talked about it two years ago. Mm-hmm. I like it even less now. Yeah. <laughs> because last week, we did Planet of Evil. Mm-hmm. Which has such a lovely Doctor and Sarah Jane rapport throughout all of it. Like I said, the looks of adoration. Mm-hmm. Do you know? The camaraderie, the bouncing off of each other, the trust in each other. And stuff that was so strong last week that, I mean, if you imagine these stories were filmed the other way around, so this was filmed before mm-hmm. last week's story, 
had it gone in that order, it probably wouldn't bother me as much. <laughs> but following on from Planet of Evil, like, I'm a very character-driven person. I get connected to character relationships. You've known this about me for as long as you've known me. And so it makes it really difficult for me to love a story when the core relationship is not as strong as I've seen it be before. Yeah. I don't like the fact that he takes out his own crap on her. So I can't get over it. Mm-hmm. I thought through the character discussion I would and actually it actually made me even worse. Okay. So it is an amazing story. I understand why it's on so many people's like favorite story ever and Norm is going to come and like hunt me down. Mm. I'm not giving it a 5. Okay. I am giving it a 4.75 though. Mm-hmm. It is very very good. Mhm. But if you're someone who's invested in the Dr. Sarah relationship, it can be incredibly painful to watch. And you know what it is? Okay. Now that I've gone through all that, I think I forgot what it was. What? I think we've, well, hopefully not everyone has, but a lot of people have had that relationship either with a friend or a romantic partner or whatever, where they spend the whole time belittling you. Mm Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that's what it felt like with this. Uh, Do you know? That he just yeah. kept sniping at her and belittling her. Mm. And I've had friendships and romantic relationships in the past where that was prominent. Mm. And I don't like it. No. However, if you're not someone whose love of media is driven purely by the relationships between the characters, that may not be an issue for you. Mm. But it was an issue for me, so I'm going to go with a 4.75. But no, but I, what, I, what I would say is that even people that are character-driven, you know, that their mm. love of the sh- things are like, it's, again, unless you've actually been in that scenario, how you how you react, I suppose, seeing it something that you love will, var- mm. you know, will vary, you know? So, like... Yeah, I'm. I'm not gonna fucking come hunt you down, you know, for <laughs> giving a, a score. But um, no, like four point seven five is a great score for that. Uh, for yeah. this story. Uh, How about you though? Cool for me. So uh, <laughs> I kind of gave the game away. I suppose at the very start. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. But no, it was a five. Then it's a five now. That for me. Um, I love this story from start to finish. And even even with the points that you raised, absolutely, like fucking understand it. Like I do, like it annoys me that he is um, so fucking snippy, and like we don't get like an on screen apology for anything like that. But I I rationalize it kind of like the way that you know I rationalize other stuff um, mm. that you haven't really liked. I rationalize it by the fact that the majority of that, his actions and his anger and his dickishness, is framed on the fact that like, he is trying to save the world from this omega level entity mm. that again and we and we saw that even when he got the reprieve he fucking still lost and it was fluke that he won right mm. and that's why that's one thing i like i love about this and i've said it before about doc, um, stories like this is that i love stories where the doctor doesn't win because he's super smart and five moves ahead of the villain mm. i love that when he like i love that he wins because he's lucky because it really gets across how threatening the story is. It actually, the story has stakes. And like, mm. 
I think now when we get to it, we'll discuss the time. But I think that's one reason why in the the revival era, the single mm. stories that are only forty five minutes long, like some of them, I'm not a big fan of because again, like it's it's wrapped up in the one episode, like so the stakes are very fucking minimal, mm. you know. Um, so like that was kind of unfortunate, you know. Um, but they're like. Don't, don't be silly. Like, I still fucking love a lot of the episodes that are going to come in the mm. revival era, but like for me, there isn't an ounce of fat on this thing. Like in terms of like, the running time, it's perfect. It's all really good. There's no wasted scenes. Nothing. The setting, I absolutely love it. Uh, the idea of the sirens coming back into things are great because I love how um, the the his the the mythology the history of the sirens and their conflict. Mm is the basis for a mythology i love when like they if it's blended into a good way like in terms of you know mm. stargate it's like i i can never i can never remember as much as i love stargate did the ghouls take on like like they're like yeah i'm Ra and yeah i'm hathor or were they the actual inspirations in general for the gods i think they were the inspirations in general okay if I recall correctly. yeah fair enough okay perfect i love that i love when it's because like the idea that hathor went 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 against raw yeah it's letting um, it's the religious part of the story yeah, yeah. and i suppose yeah. like if you think about the other uh, pantheons that are represented by the ghouls you know it would be mm. <laughs> it'd be just like yeah we're all gonna they just take credit for all this other shit uh but no yeah. i i like when that's done and it's done really well here so like to your point i would love to see us other osirens come into it because as we know like sarah sarah jane says like that Oh, these seven hundred forty became the seven hundred forty gods that were recorded as like on that uh, mm. tomb, and we know that all, all of them are good. Like, um, mm. and, like if there's going to be like for like our Marvel fans out there, for any an uh, Osirian that's like the basis of Amit or mm. um, uh, Apophis or Apep or any of these like evil entities within Egyptian mythology, mm. like. I might like okay, like they only fucking took on Sutek just for the basis of you know, fuck it, you know he could kill me, so we'll just band mm. together. So like, what happens when the big evil goes away? Is there a power vacuum to be filled? There's a lot of, a lot of uh, open territory there for Russell now, if he wishes mm. to bring it in. I just thought of something. What? So, who was your favorite character in Marvel's Moon Knight? <laughs> one character I enjoyed I don't know if she was my favourite but one character I enjoyed was Tarouette yes yeah so I kind of want to see the Osiren version of Tarouette <laughs> because the goddess of like mothers and yeah motherhood and fer- not fertility fertility but, uh, yeah no yeah, ma- like childbirth no. and whatever yeah childbirth yeah I kind of want to see that yeah see <laughs> what she only because like when we were watching Moon Knight um Obviously, I didn't know what was going up, and you were like, it's the Kane Chronicles. <laughs> and I was like, oh shit, it is. Um, but I kind of like, you know, is it, it doesn't even have to be the evil characters. Yeah, no, it, from it, it can be, mythology, the, good, it can be but the, like, the good ones, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but no, I love the setting because I'm, I'm a huge uh, fan of like Hammer Horror and like, you know, the whole mummies coming to life and like the Egyptian trope of like, you know, the early, like, like, uh, 1910s, 1920s, 1930s period. Like adding horror to that, you know, anything is you've mm. got me hooked. Uh, the villains are fantastic, all of them. 
like Ibrahim mm. Marcus is a lot like as I said he's a lot much more emotional villain now when it coming back to it supporting characters Lawrence I absolutely fucking love as a great he's a great character any bad thing I ever had to say about him before like this will be such a fucking head wreck for people when they go from this <laughs> to to listening to it on a Wednesday but no it's a five and like again you know there I have I suppose we've talked about it before where it's like I've taken some issues with some of the the way the relationships are portrayed in the thing. I can get past mm. some. I can get past others. I, I suppose it comes to my personal stake in things, mm. you know. So, yeah. Look, but it just in this one, like, it's a five. But again, like a four point seven five is a fantastic score. Like you know, yeah. Nobody at me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What I will say though is that we are three stories into the season. Mm-hmm. We have both given two fives already. Mm-hmm. You gave last week a 4.5. I gave this week a 4.75. So, season 13 is riding high. Mm -hmm. What's it going to be like as we go into the second half? So, next week we have Android Invasion. And we will see, is the 4.5 plus train going to continue? Or are we going to have a dud? We'll have to wait until next week to see. Yes. If you don't want to wait until next week to hear us, you can listen to us on Wednesday, <laughs> where after popular demand, we are going to release the original test recording mm-hmm. we did of Pyramids of Mars. Yes. So just for context for everybody, when we were first putting this together, we we've been asked for we basically stole the format from Mission Log. Yeah. Thanks, Norman John. Yes. We basically stole their format. Mm-hmm. And we made our own changes. Obviously, they do morals, meanings, and messages. We do characters. Mm. But we did a trial run, and we were trying to pick one story to do, and it was actually Norm who said, Pyramids of Mars is my favorite story, so that's the one we did. Mm. So we recorded it. We sent it over to see if the guys had any feedback. And that was literally it. We didn't do anything else with it. Mm. I have not listened to it since we sent it over to them. <laughs> to be honest, I haven't listened to it since I edited it. <laughs> <laughs> so I have no idea what you're all getting on Wednesday um, but think, yeah it'll be a special rambling this week I think as we went on we did kind of see the small bit more of like the morals meanings and messages because like we would like, go into like some of the suppose, the hidden messages in as part of our overall scoring process yeah yeah. Um, but yeah I'm actually I, I don't know why I'm, I'm feeling slightly embarrassed about it and I know I shouldn't because I, like don't Okay, this is like, you know, when like, you know, or what is it? You bring a friend home and your parent puts on like an old video of you, like your your school play or some shit like that. Thankfully, I don't have any of those. (laughs) (laughs) God. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so that'll be this week. And then next week, Android Invasion, Mm -hmm. second half of season 13. So join us then, guys. Bye.